if you haven't done so already, would you take a copy of God's Word and turn to Matthew chapter 11? Matthew chapter 11, uh, verse 7. If you're using a pew Bible, you can find that on page 816. John the Baptist uh, is in prison here. Uh, He has heard about the deeds of Jesus. And so John sends word to Jesus, are you the one who is to come? Basically, are, are you the Messiah, the Savior, or shall we look for another And uh, as Ben brought up last week, the question puzzles us, um, since John already knows so much about Jesus. Is this John doubting? Uh, Is he growing impatient with how slow the kingdom comes? What's clear is that John hadn't put all the pieces together, and so Jesus sends a message, go tell John, the blind receive sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, Jesus is the Messiah, in other words. But Jesus also touches where John needs more understanding. Blessed is the one not offended by me. What's important, John, isn't your immediate release from prison but that you stick with me, that you stay true to me. Now, if that's all we had, we may wonder what to think of John the Baptist. I mean, if he's wavering, do John's questions, do his doubts mean that we disregard his message? Well, Jesus doesn't think so. Rather, Jesus goes on to emphasize John's greatness. And in the process, we also learn more about Jesus' identity and the privilege we have in belonging to Jesus' kingdom. And so let's, let's see what Jesus says about John and what that implies for him and for us. Verse 7. As they went away, that is John's disciples, as they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you. And more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. And yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John, and if you're willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. In chapter 3, verse 5, we learn that 
all sorts of people were going out to hear John the Baptist preach. It says, from Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan, crowds traveled to the wilderness to hear John. Shocking, I know. No air conditioning, child care, or coffee. Yet, they are going to hear this man preach. John preached a message of repentance. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Matthew chapter 3, verse 2. But he also pointed to Jesus, right? The the one who is coming after me is mightier than I. Matthew chapter 3, verse 11. So many had gathered to hear this message, and some were even baptized, and, and they confessed their sins. That wasn't true for all, however. Many remain skeptical, and that's who Jesus addresses now, these, these crowds. How easy it would have been for these skeptics to hear of John, the, the bold preacher of the coming kingdom of peace, now locked up and uncertain. How easy it would have been to dismiss John. But that would have been a grave mistake, according to Jesus anyway. To dismiss John would not only dismiss one of the greatest of all, but it would, it would also mean they missed the salvation offered in Jesus and his kingdom. And so Jesus grabs their attention with a series of questions. Verse 7, what did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? Now, some take this literally. The point would be, of course you didn't go out to see something as familiar as grass blowing in the wind. You went to see something great. But you could also take this reed metaphorically. A reed blowing in the wind could represent a man that's just kind of tossed about. Did they go out to see an unstable teacher, a man with, with no backbone? No, just go back and read chapter 3. John is not swayed by the crowd. He's bold in truth. And they know this. And so Jesus follows it up with another question. What what then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Uh, Luke chapter 7 uses splendid clothing, describing those who live in luxury, right? If you wanted a fancy man with riches, perhaps someone closer to the political powers of that day, then obviously you don't go out into the wilderness. Jesus said, behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses, Also, chapter 3, verse 4 tells us that John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt. Hardly impressive. And yet they went to hear. And so Jesus again asks, what then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes. Yes, I tell you. And more than a prophet. Jesus is helping the crowds not to suppress the truth about John. They know he's at least a prophet. He's dressed like a prophet. He's he's speaking like a prophet. He's acting like a prophet. Jesus wants them to see more. And it's here that Jesus adjusts the crowd's perspective on John's ministry and all that comes with it. First, Jesus explains John's greatness as forerunner to the Messiah. He explains John's greatness as forerunner to the Messiah. Notice, Notice his point in verse 10. 
This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. That's a quote from Malachi chapter 3, verse 1, over 500 years prior to John. Israel is, is on this side of the exile. God was faithful to bring them back to the land. But as time rolls on and God's promises are slow to come to pass and evil persists in the land, the people grow cold to God. They no longer take him seriously. And so instead of devoting themselves to the covenant, they grow cynical. And they start complaining. You see this in Malachi chapter 2, verse 17, when they weary God with their complaints. Where is this God of justice? It's almost like he delights in these evildoers being around. Where is he? And to that question, God answers, Behold, I send my messenger... And he will prepare the way before me. Will prepare for what? Well, God goes on to say that God would come to purify his people like a refiner's fire. And that's not comfortable. He also plans to judge the wicked. In other words, the people were complaining that God wasn't acting fast enough. But this messenger comes to say, you better be careful yourself. I'm not so sure you're ready to meet God. You need to prepare for him. And so Jesus applies this prophecy to John the Baptist. John had come preaching repentance like other prophets had. John is preparing the way as other prophets had. But what makes him different? What makes him more, greater? What makes him greater is Jesus. What is Jesus implying about himself here? Did you notice the shift in language? Malachi's prophecy says, He will prepare the way before me. God is talking. And Jesus says, Who will prepare your way before you, with you being the Messiah? Which is it, right? Is it me, as in Yahweh, or you, as in Messiah? Yes. The Messiah embodies the coming of God. Jesus implies that he is the Lord himself coming to refine his people and judge the wicked. And this makes John greater than all the others because John is the final end-time prophet to usher in the coming of God. It's just that that coming of God is now seen in the person of Jesus. No prophet, priest, or king in Israel ever had such a privilege. And that's why Jesus will go on in verse 11 to say that among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. He's, he's speaking in categories of John's, uh, not, not of John's moral greatness or, or of John's good leadership qualities or good speaking abilities. John is greater than all in terms of the unique role he plays as forerunner to the Messiah. He gets the privilege of seeing more revelation than any before him. More than Abraham, more than Moses, more than David, and all the rest of them. 
And you'll notice also in verse 14 how Jesus says, all the, law, all the prophets and the law prophesied until John, and if you're willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. Now that too is also recalling Malachi's prophecy. The prophet goes on to announce how a day, a great day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, but for you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness shall rise with healing in its wing. And so again, we see this this pattern of Malachi anticipating this day when God will come to save his people and judge the wicked. But before that day, Malachi chapter 4 verse 5 adds this. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Elijah, God took Elijah to heaven years before. Is this Elijah coming back down from heaven? Well, more likely, Malachi is using Elijah as a type, a picture that's pointing forward, just like the Old Testament anticipates a new and better Moses, which we see in Jesus, right, at the beginning of Matthew. And just like the Old Testament anticipates a new and better David, also that we've seen in Jesus, uh, in Matthew's gospel, so also the Old Testament. Malachi, in particular, anticipates a new and better Elijah. The Elijah of old points forward to to the Elijah to come, the, the greater Elijah. And here Jesus says, if you're willing to accept it, John the Baptist is the Elijah who is to come. Now, it's also true that John denies being Elijah in John's Gospel, chapter 1, verse 21. But perhaps that's best understood as John still not seeing the full picture of John perhaps distancing himself from the more literal expectations of his day. Jesus sees the fuller picture, though. Jesus knows who John is and why he has come. That's also why we encounter so many parallels between Elijah and John the Baptist. I mean, just think about it. In 2 Kings chapter 1, verse 8, we're told that Elijah wears a garment of hair with a belt of leather. Well, that's what John the Baptist wears in chapter 3, verse 4 of Matthew. In 2 Kings chapter 2, Elijah designates his successor at the Jordan River. Well, in Matthew chapter 3, John baptizes Jesus at the Jordan. In 2 Kings, Elijah's successor is greater than than Elijah. And and, and in the Gospels, Jesus is greater than John. In 1 Kings 19, an evil woman seeks to kill Elijah. And later in Matthew 14, an evil woman sentences John to death. These aren't mere coincidences. They're designed to alert us, right? To put a big red arrow over John the Baptist saying, this is the Elijah to come. He's come in the spirit and power of Elijah. And that means the day of God's coming reign has started in the person and ministry of Jesus. John's place in redemptive history is greater than all who preceded him because he gets to introduce the Messiah. Others announced the Messiah, but never never did the Messiah come during the ministries of those prophets. John experiences more revelation than anyone prior, and that's what makes John so great. 
His greatness hinges on Jesus and pointing others to God's self-revelation in Jesus. But would you believe me if I said that you, church, are greater than John the Baptist? Would you believe Jesus? That brings us to a second way Jesus adjusts our perspective. Our greater privilege in the age of fulfillment. Our greater privilege in the age of fulfillment. Look at verse 11 again. Truly I say to you, among those born of women there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. And yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than John. Who is the least in the kingdom of heaven? An older interpretation reads least in the sense of younger and views this as a reference to Jesus himself. Jesus is greater than John. It's true that Jesus is greater than John, but that doesn't fit the broader point Jesus is trying to make. Maybe you think least in terms, oh, well, maybe he's talking about levels within the kingdom, right? Didn't Jesus say whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments will be called least in the kingdom of heaven? Matthew chapter 5, verse 19. The problem there is that Jesus uses a different word in Matthew 11, and it happens to be the same word that's, that's applied multiple times to Jesus' disciples in general, the little ones, the, the least of these who believe in me. The least then seem to include all of Jesus' disciples. If you belong to the kingdom of heaven, in this sense, then you're greater than John. The the least are, are the ones he will go on to talk about at the end of chapter 11. The ones who are humble in spirit and who are receiving the revelation of Jesus. His point isn't making a statement about John's salvation, but about the new age of fulfillment that is replacing the old age of promise. John ministers at the tail end of that old age of promise. And in that age, there's no one greater than John the Baptist. But those who experience the new age of fulfillment... Those who stand on this side of the progress of God's saving plan... Jesus says, you're greater than John. John was instrumental, the greatest, in pointing out the Messiah and the dawning of his kingdom. He was able to say things like, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. But John died before Jesus sealed the new covenant in his blood. John knew the shadows of the good things to come, but he never experienced their substance while still alive. He still belonged to that old age when sacrifices had to be made continually because they were unable to make perfect those who draw near. John never experienced the power of Jesus' resurrection life. He he never saw the wall of hostility between Jew and Gentile torn down by Jesus' blood. He never saw the curtain torn in two. He never experienced the outpoured spirit after Pentecost. He never witnessed the gospel spreading to all nations because Jesus is the risen king, but you do. And in that sense, you are greater than John the Baptist. 
you have experienced more revelation than John. How does Jesus say it to his disciples later in Matthew chapter 13? He says, blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people longed to see what you see, and they did not see it, and to hear what you hear, and they did not hear it. But you do. Along similar lines, listen to this from 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 10 to 12. He says, concerning this salvation, the, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours, they searched and they inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you. You and the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. You grasping the significance of the day that you live in and all the mercies that have been lavished upon you in this new age of fulfillment. Have you heard the gospel of Jesus Christ? Have you heard about the forgiveness of your sins and the satisfaction of God's wrath and the resurrection of the Son of God? Have you been awakened by the Holy Spirit? Do you, do you sit in the women's Bible study on Monday nights and are able to draw the dots between Joshua and, or, or the law and to Jesus in the gospels? Or do you meet in your care groups and you discuss the assurance of resurrection hope? Do you gather on a Sunday morning like this and to hear the gospel proclaimed every week? In the grand sweep of redemptive history, you're part of something huge. Something great. The greatest of all ages is upon us because Jesus has come and inaugurated the kingdom of heaven. This isn't just hyperbole. It's reality. It's who you are. Because you belong to the kingdom of heaven that is dawned in the person and work of Jesus. And that gives you a greater privilege. Now Ben's going to talk about next week that with privileges also come great responsibility. We need to address one more way, though, that Jesus adjusts our perspective. Suffering will persist as Jesus' kingdom advances in this age. Suffering will persist as Jesus' kingdom advances. Last Sunday, Ben helped us see this with respect to John's imprisonment, right? If the king is finally here, then why aren't John's circumstances in prison changing? Jesus answers that in part by telling John, blessed are those not offended by me. But a fuller answer, I think, comes in verse 12. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. And this is not an easy verse to understand. Um, just as some homework for you, uh, you could go home and pull up a several English translations on your computer or get them out and lay them beside each other and you will uh, soon notice several differences. 
And part of the difficulty is whether to translate the verb behind suffered violence as a middle or a passive voice. It's the same form in Greek. The ESV uses the passive voice in the, in the main text. But it recognizes the middle voice. In a footnote, if you see it there at the bottom of your page or in the margin, it says the kingdom of heaven has been coming violently. So one, the passive, suffered violence. The middle has been coming violently. Another issue to sort out is whether the terms should be read in a positive sense or in a negative sense. So Luke 16, 16 often comes into to play with this discussion because Luke seems to record Jesus using the verb in a positive sense. Luke 16, 16, the law and the prophets were until John, and since then the good news of the kingdom is preached, and everyone forces his way into it in the sense of they want in. They're hearing the gospel. They want in. And so there's, there's some homework for you to consider. My own take is to go with the middle voice, represented by the footnote in the ESV, meaning I think Jesus is making a point about the kingdom of heaven advancing forcefully, not in the sense of earthly military conquest, but in the sense of like the sword of Jesus' word right, prevailing, uh, the truth tearing down spiritual strongholds, the gospel liberating people from their sins and captivity to the devil. And that's not far from what Luke 16.16 has. It's just that Luke 16.16 speaks of this in terms of the good news going out and being preached as the good news is being preached. The kingdom of heaven continues its onward march and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. Right? Gates do not attack you. They are stormed down. So this idea of the kingdom of heaven going and advancing forcefully. But as that happens, Jesus says in the rest of verse 12, the violent take it by force. Meaning, there's an inevitable conflict that arises. Jesus just finished teaching his disciples about that conflict in chapter 10. The disciples uh, would, would preach the kingdom of heaven and the wicked would, would drag them into court and sentence them to death. They, they would be like sheep among wolves. John the Baptist himself is already in prison and, and we learn later that, that that's because he brought the will of Jesus to bear on Herod and his affair. You ought not be sleeping with that woman. Lock him up. And so we have an incredible privilege on this side of the kingdom's coming. But never should we get the idea that belonging to Jesus' kingdom in this life will mean ease and safety and comfort. When the new age, so you've got the old order, and the new age overlaps with that old order, there's going to be tension right here. Violent men will oppose you and try to stop you. So that's my take. You can study this more on your own and weigh it for yourself. So what should we we do with these things? Uh, Jesus finishes with, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Next Sunday, Ben will will teach on some groups of people that chose to do nothing with Jesus' words. 
hearing them they did not hear. Right? If you're a parent, right, you know, did you hear me? <laughs> Obviously not, because you're not acting on what I said. They heard, but did not hear. And it doesn't go well for them in judgment. That is, the people that aren't listening to Jesus, not the kids. Got those overlap. Clarify that. So, what will we do with these words? Jesus forces us to consider several things. One, He forces us to consider if we're prepared to meet the Lord. Are you prepared to meet the Lord? Again, Jesus used Malachi's prophecy to identify John the Baptist and recall what the people are doing in Malachi. They looked at the evil all around them and said, where is the God of justice? Where? The complaint is that God needs to be more present and He needs to be more present right now to take care of those bad guys. But here's the thing. They didn't really know what they were asking for All they see is God coming to take care of the bad guys out there. And they miss the bad guy in here. Because they're not upholding the covenant themselves. They're not ready to meet the Lord. The Lord tells them, who can endure the day of His coming and who can stand when He appears? For He is like a refiner's fire. He says, I will draw near to you in judgment. To you, Israel. That's why God must send a messenger, right? It's great mercy here that He says, I'm going to give you a messenger to prepare you for this. They're not ready to meet the Lord. And I think a big question for us is, are you prepared to meet the Lord? Is your disposition like that of Israel? Are you good at seeing all the evil out there and raising your complaint? God, where are you? Come and deal with them already. But at home, things aren't right. In your thought life, things aren't right. In your devotion to God's Word, things aren't right. In your devotion to God's people, things aren't right. And this passage tells us, well, that messenger, that messenger has come. And that messenger announced the coming of God. And we ought to be grateful that the coming of God has two moments, not just one. How great is God's mercy that before the day of judgment and fire, God comes to save. In the person of Jesus, God still brings His judgment, but for those who listen to John's message, for those who acknowledge Jesus as the coming Lord and Messiah, your judgment has already passed. It has already passed because it fell instead on Jesus at the cross. 
It is by coming to Jesus and trusting his sacrifice to make you clean that you prepare to meet the Lord. It is by confessing that Jesus is Lord and then arranging your life around him that you prepare. But also recognize this. If you confess that Jesus is Lord and if you arrange your life around him, It's not going to go easy for you. And that's number two. Expect suffering as you participate in the kingdom's advance. Expect suffering as you participate in the kingdom's advance. There there is a tendency in the West to treat values like safety and comfort as absolute rights. Safety is such a normal expectation that we've sometimes hindered basic Christian discipleship. The worst examples come with the so-called prosperity gospel, which teaches that God wants you healthy and wealthy. But more subtle is when Christians operate as if God owes us protection from suffering. Or when one of our first concerns is not, how can we enter to get the gospel to them, but is it safe? Is it safe? Are my kids safe? Why is that the first question we're asking? You combine that with some, some of the freedoms in our constitutional republic and the, and the rule of law and, and the historical influence of Christian morality. And it's very easy to grow up in the faith thinking that following Jesus is safe and comfortable and easy. It looks like middle class America. But Jesus teaches the exact opposite. To belong to his kingdom will mean suffering. And so be careful not to embrace the underlying assumptions of our culture. Guard yourself from any sense of entitlement to safety and comfort. And also, as you're helping others to mature in Jesus, we have a huge blessing, right, in our current circumstances to have the freedom to speak the way we do. But as you're raising up disciples, don't... I mean, read the discipleship curriculum that's out there. Where it, you got a lesson on how to share your faith and how to read your Bible and, and how to pray and how to go to church. Where's a chapter on, here's how you're going to suffer. Here's how you're going to be challenged in your faith. faith. Here's what it looks like to have crises in the moments of Doubt. So as you're helping others to mature in Jesus, you need to remind them of Jesus' teaching on the conflict involved. And you need to teach them about the cost of discipleship. And you need to tell them stories of what it has cost in your life. Or what you've seen it cost in other people's lives, right? Read Christian biographies of those who've gone before us and set these examples before others in your instruction of them. Help them see how every day with Jesus is not always sweet and easy. Help them to see how true love is rarely convenient. Rarely. Help them to see how faithfulness comes with hardship. But in the end, Jesus is worthy. He's worthy of our obedience. Number three, we're forced to see that greatness 
hinges on Jesus and pointing others to Jesus. Greatness hinges on Jesus and pointing others to Jesus. Listen to these words from from D.A. Carson. I'm going to quote him at length because I found it so, so helpful. He says, We must see that the deepest Christian criteria for self-assessment, individually or corporately, are not the criteria of the world. Then he asks, What makes you great in your mind? What gives you your importance, your significance? Is it your family? Is it your education? Is it your income? Is it your race? Is it the comfort, jo- the comfort zone in this church? Your understanding of Scripture, the size of your library, the bigness of your car, your muscles, your strength, your beauty, your experience. Is that what makes you significant? Nope. Carson then says, Christian criteria for self-assessment are first of all radically Christ-centered. We know Him. And secondly, they entail witness to Him. We point Him out. In other words, he says, if verse 11, the second part, is on the same plane as verse 11, the first part, he says, then what makes us great is not just that we have the privilege of being Christians, but that we bear witness to Christ with greater clarity and immediacy than all those who came before us, including John the Baptist. All Christians live at a place in time in redemptive history where the very core of our significance is bound up with the enormous privilege of bearing witness to Jesus Christ. End quote. Do you assess your significance, your greatness this way? It's so easy for us to drift the other way, isn't it? To, to, take, to take on the world's criteria for greatness and, and start measuring ourselves by power and, and wealth and, and, and attractiveness and success and popularity. But it's not Jesus' criteria. This isn't far from what happens in Luke chapter 10, verse, verse 20. I mean... The 72, they return from their mission and, and they're excited. They're all jazzed up because, you know, they're healing and, and seeing great things happen. And they say to Jesus, even the demons are subject to us in your name. Look how great our ministry was. Look how successful we were, Jesus. And Jesus says, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, Do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. That's what matters most. You belong to me, guys. That's what matters most. Jesus always brings us back to the core. Greatness hinges on him and pointing others to him. And then finally... In moments of weakness, rest assured that Jesus stands by you. 
In moments of weakness, rest assured that Jesus stands by you. It wasn't too long ago that, that we heard Jesus say this back in Matthew chapter 10, verse 32. He says, everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. That's a promise. Don't we see that playing out here with John the Baptist? John has acknowledged Jesus before men, and now we get a picture of Jesus acknowledging John. But even more beautiful is how Matthew sets this up for us. He doesn't hesitate to show us John's struggle, John's confusion, John's need for understanding. We catch John in a, in a moment of weakness, perhaps doubt, perhaps impatience. And all the while, we also see that Jesus never leaves John to himself. Jesus stands with John. He continues to teach John. Right, The blind receive their sight, John. The lame walk, the lepers. Are, Blessed is the one who is not offended by me. He gently instructs John. He supports John. And he also commends John for all the ways he's been faithful up to that point. So perhaps you've found yourself in moments of doubt and confusion. Perhaps you've had years of faithfulness to Jesus, but you've entered a season where you're you're struggling. Because you don't see the whole picture yet. Maybe you look back and you wish you would have done something differently. I just want to say, don't lose heart. Don't feel like Jesus is done with you. Don't give up. He sees where you've been faithful. Jesus stands by those who concern themselves with His work and His mission and His glory. And He will teach and guide and support you. So rest there, beloved. Let's pray. Father, you are good. We thank you for your kind, your kindness in our Lord Jesus. We thank you for the way you have made him clear to us, not only in the preaching of John, but in what you entrusted the apostles to hand down to us. We have so much in this present age to be thankful for. Help us to remember it as we continue the race that you've set before us and help it lead us to the end. In Christ we pray. Amen.